usually by this point in time, when you're starting to generate jobs, a lot more people participate in the labor force because they think they're going to get a job. They throw their hat back into the ring and they get excited about the fact that they're going to get a job in the next couple of weeks. We've yet to see that excitement come back. We've yet to see that hope come back. And I think the main problem is we're not generating the kind of jobs that we lost. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Tuesday, April 5th. And that was chief economist at Mesero Financial, the ubiquitous Diane Swank. You heard at the top talking to NBC Nightly News. Today on the program, how do you create a job? We are going to give you step-by-step instructions. Actually, just kidding. We're not. Job creation is probably the most frequent promise made by politicians. But how do you actually do it? How do you create a job? Not so simple. But first, of course, today's Planet Money Indicator from our own Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, $5.8 trillion, with a T. Is that the biggest indicator we've ever had? It's the biggest indicator I can remember off the top of my head. I'm usually saying billion with a B, right? Anyway, a budget proposal that, that was being introduced today by Paul Ryan. He's the Republican who chairs the House Budget Committee. It would cut federal spending by $5.8 trillion over the next 10 years. So we have gotten used to dealing with really big numbers in the last few years. And, and to be honest, when I hear $100 billion now, government did such and such, $100 billion, this bank lost $100 billion, just doesn't get me excited. Yeah, whatever. Come yeah, on, whatever. $100 billion? I don't have time for $100 billion. Exactly. But I've got to say, $5.8 trillion, that actually gets my attention. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And you know that's really one of the striking things about this plan. You can definitely argue about whether the plan is good or bad. But this plan is definitely not subtle. It would make really substantive changes to the tax code. It would cap a lot of federal spending. In the longer term, it would even make big changes to Medicare. That's the health insurance program for the elderly. And, you know, Medicare, it's very popular. It's increasingly expensive. And it's politically pretty hard to touch. So at a time when people are obsessed with the deficit, with the long-term debt that this country will bear... I've heard people say, if you're not talking about Medicare, if you're not talking about big, serious moves, then you're not really addressing the deficit in a, in a real way. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it, it's at least true for today that because of this plan, people are talking about Medicare. That at least is good news, right? Whatever you think of this plan. Sure. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks. So, Alex. Yeah? I'd like to take a moment to make a very special announcement. I'm all ears. Today... I am announcing my candidacy for president of Planet Money. That's right. If you vote for me, if you and Caitlin and Jess and Hannah, if you vote for me, I'm going to bring jobs back to our community. (laughs) Jobs. That's right. My opponent, David Kestenbaum, running on the particle physics platform, he claims that his specialized knowledge in particle physics will bring 8,000 new jobs to the Planet Money community. Well, I tell you, Alex... His policies are going to kill jobs. I, Adam Davidson, will bring 15,000 new jobs to the planet money community. 15,000? Yeah. That's almost double what David Kessenbaum's going to bring. Where'd, where'd you get that number? You don't think it's enough? Okay, 30,000. <laughs> I'm going to bring 30,000 new jobs. Have you been watching politicians on TV again? In a tough economy, we're working hard to create opportunity. It's still all about jobs. That's what people are talking about all across the country. When the president became president, we started creating jobs right away. It is so. President Obama has been a job creator from day one. 
I pledge to you here today and to all the other citizens of the state of Wisconsin that by the end of my first term, we will create 250,000 new jobs in this state. We have a bipartisan bill that will create jobs according to the CBO immediately. All right. So right now we as a nation are shifting gears into this presidential campaign. Soon there will be all sorts of promises about all sorts of jobs at the presidential level, mayors, governors, everybody saying, if you vote for me, I will create jobs. So we wanted to find out what what does that mean? Can a politician create a job? And so we went to find out. One guy we thought would have some answers, Orly Ashenfelter, a labor economist who's president of the American Economic Association. And in fact, he's such a big deal economist that on the day we called him, he had just received yet another accolade. I had my day made just a second ago. I noticed that I'm being satirized in The Onion. That's right. The greatest honor of our time being fake quoted in the satiric newspaper, The Onion. It's a pretty funny article. I'll I'll say this. It, it, It has to do with edible arrangements. You can check it out online. So we started off by asking Orly, when he hears those politicians on TV talking about how they created jobs or they're going to create a whole bunch of jobs, how does he react? I usually laugh. Because normally when you say you created something, you have a notion of causality that you caused them to be an absent something that you had done. They wouldn't be. But I think the best spin you can put on it is that when someone says that, they are stating a fact, which is that while I was in office, employment increased by 150,000 or whatever it increased by. Whether or not you can attribute that to what they did – is another and much more difficult question. By the way, you don't often hear people say, I would laugh just as much if they did, though. You don't often hear people say, I destroyed 150,000 jobs. (laughs) Right, right. So politicians take credit for job creation in a whole bunch of ways. Probably the most direct way is they create some new service, like they arrange to have a prison in their community, and then they hold a press conference and say, hey, look, we just employed 100 prison guards. I created 100 prison jobs, or I created a hundred new teaching jobs, or a hundred new police jobs. Yeah, or, or military jobs. But Orly Ashenfelter says, just because you've brought jobs to your area doesn't mean you've increased the net number of jobs in the country. If I take some action that results in hiring a hundred more civil servants, does that mean that total employment increases by a hundred people? Or was it the case that in order to hire those hundred, I had to reach into the private sector to attract them? in which case the net creation is zero. So this is this – is, I'm not saying that's always the way it is, it's, but that's, that's what you have to determine. So the, the mere fact uh, that – it, it is important to know that a program exists, but the mere fact that it exists doesn't mean that it actually fulfilled the objectives that were stated for it. This actually turns out to be one of the central battles of economics in the 20th century and, and into the 21st century, the idea of does government spending create more jobs? And here's a, a simplified way of understanding the sides. So Keynesian economists, generally democratic economists more likely, do generally believe that if there's a recession, if there's lots of people out of work who want to work, if the government spends a lot of money in that condition, then they can increase the amount of jobs out there. Now, the other side, we could call them more libertarian, more market-oriented economists, Chicago school economists, they tend to say, no, it doesn't work, that the government can't spend its way to create more jobs. Now, what both sides agree 
Keynesians and Chicago schools, Democratic economists and Republican economists, what they tend to all agree on is in normal times, which hopefully we'll get back to one day, when there's very little unemployment, when basically the economy is humming along, in those times, direct spending by government is not a way to create jobs. All that does is have the government compete with the private sector that can increase inflation, that can cause all sorts of problems, but it won't increase the number of jobs. And in fact, he says you don't want government creating jobs most of the time. Most job creation comes from the private sector. So we put our question to Orly Ashenfelter. How do you create a job? And just a quick footnote, whenever an economist tells you he's going to give you a simple answer, he means it's going to be actually a little complicated. How do you create a job? Well, there's a simple answer to that, and then there's the details. The simple answer is jobs are created when what it costs to employ a worker is less than the value of the output they create. That That is the fundamental problem. When employment is growing, it's because there are reasons why employers want to hire people, and that's because uh, by hiring them, they increase their profits. So that's the simple answer. The simple answer is you have to have a situation where someone benefits from employing additional people. Now, that, it just seems simple-minded, right? Because then you ask, well, okay, how do I do that? That, that becomes difficult. Let's use a, a concrete real-world example. I'm, I'm willing to bet that one of the most annoying facts in the world to President Obama right now is the fact that Microsoft has more than $40 billion just sitting in bank accounts, just in savings. They are not spending that money on new products, on factories, on software design. They're not spending that $40 billion on things that actually create jobs. They're just sitting on it. And that's sort of weird because you would think, okay, Microsoft, they have all these ways of making money. They could sell like software, they sell services, they sell some hardware. Why don't they take some of that money and make things with it to sell people? It seems like that would be better for them, right? Right. And this is the central question. There are right now lots and lots and lots of companies that have lots of money in the bank. In fact, you've heard President Obama sort of yell at them, why don't you spend more of that money? Now, economists look at this and they say, well, it's all about the technical term, marginal efficiency of investment. That's basically saying, how much of a dollar you invest do you get to keep in profits? And what that means in Microsoft's case is, they don't see any benefit to taking that money out of savings and investing it in anything. Right now, Microsoft doesn't see enough marginal efficiency of investment to make it worthwhile. So what does the government do in this case? How do we get Microsoft to stop saving so much and start investing more? Well, President Obama tried sort of lecturing them. That hasn't worked. Another option is the governor of Washington or the mayor of Redmond could call them up and say, hey, I got a brilliant investment idea. I got the new software killer app that's going to destroy Google. You should spend $20 billion developing it. Right. And the thing is that, obviously, the, the biggest key to their decision is, do we have something that we feel like we can invest that money in that will give us profits? And a lot of that is about coming up with a new idea, figuring out something else to invest that money in. And there's not much government can do about that. There's not much that government can do to help Microsoft come up with the next hot piece of software. But there are things government can do to make Microsoft, to sort of seduce Microsoft into spending more of that money. And basically, it comes down to appealing to their greed, appealing to their self-interest by creating the conditions where Microsoft feels that they will get more bang for their buck. They'll get more profit for every dollar they invest. So one way is to cut 
taxes. This is why you always hear, especially Republican politicians, talking about we should cut the corporate tax rate. We got to cut taxes. Because what they're saying is if we cut taxes, Microsoft and all the other cash-rich companies will think, oh, well, now if I make a profit, I'll keep more of it. So maybe I'm more inclined to, to spend. To take that money out of that's just sitting there in the bank and spend it on something. And remember, when it's sitting in the bank, it doesn't employ that many people. When you spend it on things, when you invest in things, it tends to employ more people. And so that's why people see this link between cutting taxes, which makes companies more profitable, which encourages them to take this money out of savings and spend it on stuff, which helps them employ people. So that's why a lot of Republican politicians are also obsessed with regulation, because that sort of does the same thing. It cuts cost. If Companies don't have to spend so much money on OSHA safety regulations or on the minimum wage. Then they'll also feel like, oh, I can spend less money to make profit, so I'm more inclined to invest. And that is why when you call economist Casey Mulligan at the University of Chicago and ask him, how do you create jobs? He gives you this list of things you can do. Cutting taxes, uh, eliminating regulations that get in the way of arrangements between employers and employees, like the minimum wage would be... the a big example there. Business may have an opportunity to uh, create some jobs if if those jobs were cheap enough. And but if the law says you know you can't offer cheap jobs, then then, then they offer no job at all. Um, and unemployment insurance is an example of a subsidy that rewards people for not working. So wait, wait, wait. Your proposal is lower corporate taxes, eliminate the minimum wage, roll back what. What many in America, certainly not all, but many in America see as some of the, the greatest advances of the, of the early part of the 20th century. Well, those would all raise employment and raise them no, noticeably. You, you asked me how to raise employment, and those are all things that the government put in place that lowered employment, and rolling them back would raise it. Casey Mulligan, I'm pretty sure, would like us to point out, he's not recommending that we roll back all the programs of the 20th century and and go back to an earlier time. He, he's not advocating. He's just simply pointing out that there are trade-offs, that we don't really want politicians to do everything they can to create more jobs, because sometimes there are things we value more than jobs, like, like worker safety. And in fact, he says, in American history, we've gone from times when we had lots and lots of jobs to times when we had fewer jobs. And most people would agree that that was a good thing. For example, he says, there were far more jobs in 1900 than there were in 1950. But 1950 was overall a better time to live. People had a much higher standard of living. In 1950, people were more educated. They had more technology. And each worker was able to make a lot more. So the rewards from being a worker were, were a lot greater. And then that gives people also the desire to maybe enjoy a retirement. Retirement kind of appeared for first time in a major way in the 50s. I mean, 1900, you, there are some exceptions like Civil War veterans, but uh, you worked in, until you dropped. Um, th that wasn't really true in 1950. People enjoyed a, a retirement period. And by 1950, it was pretty uncommon for kids to be working. 1900, not, not uncommon at all. A lot of kids dropped out of school at early ages to work. Talking to Casey Mulligan, Adam, you and I both realize that when we're talking about creating jobs, we're not actually just talking about creating jobs. We're not talking about creating <laughs> jobs for children working in factories and jobs for old people so that, you know, when, when they should be retired. We're talking about creating good jobs, jobs that people want to have, jobs that give people a high standard of living that they can then retire at the end of. That's the sort of thing that we're talking about. And 
Casey Mulligan, by showing this example of how much better off people were in the 1950s than 1900, is basically making the point that cutting taxes on corporations is only one strategy that the government should employ if they want to increase the number of good quality jobs. Orly Ashenfelder told us that very often government increases the marginal efficiency of investment. It seduces Microsoft and the other companies to invest their money in good quality jobs by spending money, which can mean raising taxes. There are a lot of good things that mayors and governors do that that probably do make people better off and create investment and, and as a result create more employment. I mean, probably the greatest example at the city level in the last 25 years <clears throat> is the decline in crime in urban areas. You know, we've gone from being far less safe than any European country to, generally speaking, far safer. Murder rate is an exception, but for most kinds of crime, we are now much lower than they are. And that goes hand in hand with the complete rebirth, as far as I can tell, of a large number of America's uh, urban areas. They've boomed. Uh, so it, creating that, spending money on whatever it did, I'm not sure, by the way, why it happened, but uh, that probably did increase uh, total amount of jobs and certainly jobs in those city areas. And so I grew up in New York City in the 1970s where it was very dangerous, a lot of crime. And so I, I have I have a million dollars. I want to open a store. But I'm like, man, I got to spend a thousand on a, on a really tough gate and I'm going to have to spend another thousand on a security guard. That's going to eat into my profit. And then people are going to be afraid to come to my store after seven right. o'clock when it gets dark. Or in whatever. fact, you're, yeah. you're describing Harlem at that time. So something a governor or a mayor or a president could conceivably do is create the conditions that allow people to feel more confident, more comfortable investing. Is, is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. I think anything that would increase the marginal efficiency of investment is a plus. So the way I hear what he was saying is he's sort of taking politicians to task and telling them, don't talk so much about how you're going to create jobs and you have the unique power to get the private sector to create jobs. Just do your job. Just do the basics of providing solid government services. Keep our streets clean and safe. Keep our uh, basic government operations running. And that will create the conditions that will allow the private sector to invest money. What was striking to me, Adam, is that it made me realize, oh, when I hear politicians talking about their job creation measures, it's usually rooted in some kind of economic theory. It's often oversimplified and distorted, but at least it's rooted in that. Like, for example, Scott Walker talking about lowering bargaining rights for workers and, and lowering corporate tax rates. He's basically doing what Casey Mulligan told us. He's trying to increase the marginal efficiency of investment by, by reducing barriers on, on, on companies. And then you hear about President Obama saying, we're going to invest in education. He's talking about what Orly Ashenfelter just said. He's trying to create the conditions where corporations want to invest their money. And Alex, you remember when we started this podcast, what I said to you is, I want to go beyond Democrat and Republican. I want to find out what economists can tell us. I, I don't want politicians taking one little lesson from economics and acting like it's the only thing and ignoring everything else. And in a certain sense, that is what we found. Orly Ashenfelter, who has worked for Democratic administrations, generally seen, I think, as, as, as more left of center, and Casey Mulligan, more of a libertarian Chicago school economist, they both largely agreed that it's a trade-off, that there is no one answer, that government can do a lot by cutting taxes. It can also do a lot by raising taxes and spending money. Here's Orly Ashenfelter. If you make government run better, uh, that, that'll probably make it more likely people will want to invest uh, uh, in your area. 
And likewise, if you if you reduce uh, the onus of government taxes or whatever it may be, that may increase the likelihood that people want to invest with you too. Wait, I think you just said that more government creates jobs and also less government creates jobs. It could be. I mean, it just depends <laughs> on how well it's used. Uh, the trouble is a lot of times people – in other words, what I, what I mean by that is that both things could be right and you could actually follow both policies. Wait, how could you be, have more government and less government? Well, you, what you do is make the government run well, do things well, not just across the board have a cut. You you'd focus on the things that actually make a, an area – more attractive for investors and and focus off of the things that don't. And you do that by actually balancing the costs and benefits associated with those decisions. And the same thing would be true when you were making decisions about whether you're going to cut government. So you could easily have a situation where you reduce the government in some sector and increase it in another and that would have a desirable overall effect. But the way most people talk about this topic is it's not very thoughtful. You know, actually ask yourself – does anybody ever ask when we think about doing a government policy, OK, there will be some benefits. Tell me what they are. But it's going to cost something. Tell me how much. Hey, Alex. Yeah. After this podcast, I've decided to um, – I want to re-announce my candidacy for president of Planet Money. I have a new campaign slogan I'm pretty excited about. All right. I can't wait to hear it. All right. I, Adam Davidson, if elected, will do my best to create the conditions in which the private sector – feels it can invest more in job creation. I will recognize throughout that there are costs and benefits to every policy I propose, and I will try carefully to study the trade-offs between worker safety and worker happiness and the marginal efficiency of investment. In the end, I recognize I will have a limited impact on the number of jobs, yet I do feel that by doing this, I will create the conditions for more jobs than if I did not do these things. Um, that's your platform. That, that's my new slogan. I got a, I'm getting T-shirts <laughs> made up. I've got a bumper sticker. You know what I'm going to say to you? What? I'm voting for Kestenbaum. He promised me a job. All right. <laughs> All right. So we are going to hear a lot. I mean, this presidential campaign is just starting now. We've Oh, my goodness. We have like a year and a half of this coming. Lots and lots of politicians to, from all sorts of stripes telling us how they have figured out how we're going to create more jobs. Hey, I got some really good news, though, for all the politicians out there, people considering running for office. All the candidates of 2012. Exactly. I think this is a great time to be elected because basically every forecast shows that from 2012 to like 2015, there's going to be a lot of jobs created. We have a really high level of unemployment. It's very natural then for that to fall. And so if you are elected in 2012, it doesn't really matter. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Socialist, doesn't matter what you do to taxes, to regulation, to anything you're probably going to be able to take credit for lots and lots of job creation. You are a part of an economic cycle that is bigger than you, that is beyond your control, that doesn't really respond to much of what you do. So our advice, sit back, take credit. Be sure to check out the Planet Money blog, npr.org slash money. You'll see my 73-point plan for job creation. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. 